It's April 21st, 2006. I'm 32 years old. Some of you are adding my age up right now. May 8th of that year, Penny and I would have been married seven years, and we're about to have our first child. We went to the hospital early that morning, and for some reason, some of the numbers, the heartbeat was slowing, couldn't figure out what was going on, scary time. Couldn't find the heartbeat, found the heartbeat, it's nerve-wracking, scary moments, especially for Penny and I. Penny went to a very long labor, at least 12 hours, probably felt like 1,200 hours. Then around 6.15 on April 21st, our first son, Matthew Rivers Palmer, was born. And I remember thinking, really? What have I done? He didn't look like I thought he was going to look. And I remember the doctor handing me these scissors and me cutting the cord and him telling me now he's on his own. They handed him to Penny, and I watched as these nurses scrubbed like the first three or four layers of skin off of him, and they handed him back to me, bright pink, Baby boy, one of the most awesome experiences. Penny, of course, was a rock star through it all. So impressive. And we were overcome by this miracle of birth, of all the details that had to happen in order for that experience to happen. And now, I was a father, a dad. And what immediately took me by such surprise was how much new love could instantly instantly be given and this capacity to love was immediately given in that split second I, I was in, i was incredibly humbled so unworthy so felt so ill-equipped completely sober by what was going on and then then the sobering questions started happening as i was hold rivers and i would pray for him and, and i would think god am i ever going to have what it takes to be the kind of father rivers needs God, will I teach him all the things he needs to know? God, I don't want to let him down. God, is he going to like me? And God, am I really going to like him? I ask God then, and I ask God now, for so many favors for rivers on his behalf. At age 32, I felt suddenly thrust into someone... I had no idea how to be a dad. And then just two and a half years later, I was reminded again of this gift, this instant gift of capacity to love when we had Benjamin Wells Palmer. And his birthday is easy to remember, 10, 9, 8. And no love ever felt subtracted from one or the other, never felt divided. It only felt multiplied. And the wonder and amazement at the amount of love that can be given for two small people. It's incredible. And the same feeling, the same weight of raising one son in the crazy world. And now we got two to raise in a crazy world. Needless to say, my dependence on the Lord was at an all-time high. 
I remember thinking, rivers and wells are going to look to me in search of someone to model as a man. And in many ways, derive their image and relationship to God based on my relationship with them. And the weight of this. Now, I knew I had an incredible example as a dad. Penny had an incredible example as a godly father. But now it was my turn. And I began thinking, am I going to have what it takes to raise these boys in a God-honoring way? But you know, it really didn't matter what I thought at the moment because the moment was there. They were here. They were going to need a dad, not just any dad, but a dad that was intentional about following God's story for their lives. And that's what we're talking about this morning intentional dad. So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you for dads. Thank you for their call, for their conviction. And God, I pray this morning as we open your word that we would be reminded that you are our heavenly father who is extremely intentional with his children. That you are our perfect example of an intentional dad. So God, we pray this morning that you speak to us, not only as dads, but all of the people here and the people watching online, to resonate and connect with you as our Heavenly Father. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you? beside you that they would hear and respond to the Lord this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first thing I want to look at is the understanding of the need for fathers. Malachi 4.6 says this, He will turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Several years ago, Barack Obama said this, Any fool can have a child. That doesn't make you a father. It's the courage to raise a child that makes you a father. John Tyson in his book, Intentional Father, which I'll be looking at, um, a number of times at the beginning of this message, says this, The role of fatherhood is one of the most overlooked yet crucial roles in our society. The data and our own experience cannot be clearer. When a father is present, emotionally healthy, and involved in a child's life, the child is, has a tremendous advantage in the world to navigate its complexities and challenges with joy and confidence. Many of us have heard this phrase before, or even said the phrase, raising a child. Well, this concept of raising a child is rather uh, kind of an intense tradition. It's kind of almost barbaric because here's what would happen. When children were presented in the Roman culture times, they were presented to the head of the household. And if the father wanted the child, the child would be held by the father and would literally be raised up. And this signified to everyone in the room, everybody there, to the community even, that I want this child. I'm taking responsibility for this child. I'm going to do everything I can for this child to raise him up into the person he needs to be. 
if the head of household didn't want the child, they didn't even look at the child. They looked away. And the child was put out to exposure. So the significance is, is as we think about this phrase, raising a child, it means that I am taking responsibility to help this person grow and mature. And so the question becomes, how do we raise boys into manhood or girls into womanhood in this day and age in our culture during these difficult times? Now, I meet with a group of guys every Friday morning. I've been meeting with them for several years, at least seven. And I would say that we have met consistently, and there are very, very few times, I can't even remember any time where one of us didn't talk about our kids and what it meant to be a dad to our kids because we're all trying to navigate the different personalities of our kids our passions that our kids have and what the world is offering and throwing them at them and we're all going what do I do how do I do it how are you doing that what should I be thinking it's a challenge, but it's also a great privilege and joy because we all desire what Malachi says, that he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the children to their parents. And what I'm finding more and more in parents, particularly dads, is that they are doing the very best they can in doing this parenting thing right and making a difference in their kids' lives. But sadly, I don't meet a lot of dads who are really confident that they're doing it right. But I meet a lot of dads who are determined. And so dads, if you're here this morning determined to do it right, I honor you. And I'm thankful for you. Your investment will prove beneficial, even if you don't see it today. Most dads are determined to get it right because we also realize the last half of the verse in Malachi is also true. I will come and strike the land with total destruction. If our kids are not being directed by God-honoring dads from us as parents, they will get direction from somewhere else. So there is a need for intentional dads. Tyson writes in his book, we're living in a time where men don't know what it means to be men anymore. And women don't know what it means to be women. It feels to me like there is total confusion. Research has shown us in the, at the heart of our culture's inability to raise boys and girls into men and women is this epidemic of fatherlessness. Now here's just a few stats relating to how the absence of fathers impacting our society. If you get a chance, check out fatherhood.org. It's an incredible resource for these stats. Now according to the U.S. Census Bureau, this is in 2022, 18.4 million children, one in four, live without a biological step or adoptive father in the home. Now that number seems big to me, so let me help say what this number looks like. That number is enough children to fill New York City twice or Los Angeles four times over. Children without fathers are four times more likely to live in poverty, more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems, 
have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born into married homes, have two times the risk of infant mortality, are more likely to go to prison, only one in five prison inmates grew up with their father present, are twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity, and the list goes on and on and on. Without proper parenting, kids are left to figure out and navigate this culture on their own. And if we look around, we'll see where this self-initiated direction has gotten us. In his book, Tyson says this, Boys and girls, while attempting to self-initiate their way into adulthood, are actually carrying their adolescence into adulthood with them. We are surrounded by adult men and women who in actuality are nothing more than teenagers still trying to find their way. And let me just say this as, uh, as gently as I can. This is in no way, no way a condemnation, a guilt thing. This is in no way uh, to, to, to produce anything about what you have or what you ha- hadn't have. Because here's the truth. There is always the possibility of redemption with God. So my point is to show the importance and the need for fathers, particularly godly fathers, in our culture, and that's just our second point. Dad's being intentional. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 11 through 17, has some interesting things, and I love how the message uh, talks about it. It says this, Don't waste your time on useless work, mere busy work, the barren pursuits of darkness. Expose these things for the sham they are. So watch your step. Use your head. Make the most of every chance you get. These are desperate times. Don't live carelessly, unthinkingly. Make sure you understand what the master wants. I'm convinced that being a father is one of the most sacred responsibilities that a man can have. Being a husband first, then a dad. Now, in his book, Tyson, Stacey, I got a little bit of feedback. I'm not sure if I'm, it may just be in my own head, which is quite possible. Now, Tyson, in his book, Uh, describes five different types of fathers. There's probably more, but he took five. And so dads, if you're um, wondering, listen to this list and kind of see where you fit. And if you're not sure, ask your kids. The first one is the irresponsible father, the one who has literally no involvement with his kids, someone who completely bails on them to the point that they don't even know who he is, takes no responsibility, provides no child support, contributes no meaningful support to the lives of his children. The second one is the ignorant father. Now, all of us at some point are ignorant fathers. It's okay. This type of father, though, has no idea what he's doing and continually wreaks havoc in the lives of his children without even realizing it. Here's the difference. He doesn't know anything about being a father, and he doesn't try to learn or improve on what it looks like to be a father. Because of this, he ends up projecting his own brokenness into the lives of his children. There's the inconsistent father. This father who is torn by personal ambition has the capability of doing better at this fathering thing, but instead he prioritizes his own job, career, and hobbies. These binges of selfishness are often followed by guilt and feeble attempts to fix everything, but there's no stable sense of security or identity passed on to his children. Then there's the involved father. Now, this this dad shows up at sporting events, takes time to to put uh, filters on their phone or parental controls on the kids' devices. 
He gets a lot of things right, but because of the busyness of life and the failure to ask the right questions, he never seeks to understand specifically who his children are and why God gave them to him. It's a noble dad, but one that's always haunted by this sense that I could be more. Then there is the intentional father. Listen to what Tyson says about the intentional father. The intentional father is deeply invested in discovering who his children are and how he can help them reach their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting as central to his call before God and does it with all his might. That's the intentional father. And so, Dad, I ask you, which type best describes you most of the time? Now, this morning, I want to show you a video clip of a, of a dad that we recorded just on Friday that I believe he attempts to tell the story of somebody who has modeled what it means to be an intentional dad. Watch this video. Hello, my name is Mike Reeves. I'm the dad of Michael and Brennan Reeves. We've lived on Hilton Head Island for myself 41 years. When I first became a dad to Michael uh, in December of 1988, I remember thinking along the way um, what it was going to be like to be a dad. So I was 30 when Ann and I married, and we knew early on that we wanted to start a family pretty early. Michael came along within the first year of our marriage. Um, we were very excited and thrilled that uh, we had become parents and looked forward to the challenges that we knew we would face along the way. After Michael was born, um, I remember through the years that um, I could tell that Michael had this great hand-eye coordination. and. We used to practice ball all the time in the house, um, whether it was bouncing a ball or just throwing it back and forth. And as Michael grew, he turned in to be a really good athlete, um, not just at the lower level, but also when he became a high school student. Um, and so for Michael, it was a lot of traveling to baseball games, whether it was uh, travel baseball, soccer, football. We spent a lot of time on the road with Michael, um, just following him through athletics. In July of 1991, God blessed us with a second child, Brennan. Uh, early on, it was evident that Brennan had some health problems. At eight weeks, he was determined to be failure to thrive. And so we spent a lot of time in the hospital with Brennan at MUSC ultimately at Emory University along the way we wound up at Eggleston Children's Hospital in Atlanta. So differently from Michael, we spent a lot of time with Brennan traveling to and from hospitals because of his disease, which was cystic fibrosis. So Brennan was a lot like Michael in the fact that he really loved sports. The difference between the two was Brennan was just unable to participate at the level Michael was able to participate because of his lung disease. 
And so it created a different path for us with Brennan. He loved sports so much that he became the most knowledgeable person in our family about sports. He was our go-to when it came to sports trivia. Brennan knew everything there was to know about sports. But the path was different because he couldn't participate at the travel level that Michael could. And so we had a different path for him. He ultimately found his way in high school with acting. He went on to the College of Charleston where he got his degree in theater. Um, he wrote his own one-act play called Breathe. He performed that throughout the U.S. Um, so he found his niche, which we found important for him, as well as Michael finding his niche. And I would tell any parent out there that has a child like that to embrace that because those kids are very special. And I was told a long time ago, multiple times, and it took a little bit of time to sink in with me, although I did understand it, that God gave Brennan to Ann and I for a reason. And all I can do is hope that we gave back to Brennan and to the community what it was like to deal with a child that needed extra help along the way because of his health issues. And so don't look at it as just a challenge. Look at it as God entrusted you with that child and that child is a blessing to you and to everyone around. And Brennan proved to be more than that to our family as well as to this community. He was phenomenal. And so trying to find the time between us and them was also a challenge, especially with Brennan being as sick as he was. But along the way, we did figure out how we needed to carve out time for the husband-wife versus the family, because I think it was important for us to give time to each other so that we could in turn pass along and give time to our kids. So along the way, my parents lived close and we were able to have them come watch our kids and we could take a trip or we could go away for the weekend. So we found a balance there that worked for us, that allowed us as husband and wife to spend time together, as well as getting back into the family routine on a very regular basis and not taking away from time with our kids because they were our life and that's where we wanted to spend our time. And so we figured out the balance for us that worked for us along the way. Time for us, time for us and the kids. One of the greatest joys for me as being a dad to Michael and Brennan was to watch them grow from small kids to adulthood and watching their lives along the way as they develop. And everything that it took for us as parents to give them, to get them to the place that they are today. You know, I felt like that both kids were a little different and it took a little different parenting. It took some disciplining. And I hope that along the way we did all the right stuff. And I feel as though we did because I feel like both of our boys have turned out to be upstanding people in our community. But the joy of that whole thing for me was just watching them grow from being young kids to being young adults, having meaningful paths in their life, touching people along the way, and making an impact. And I believe both of my guys have done that.
As you may or may not know, my family has faced its biggest challenge that we've ever had in our lives. We lost Brennan four weeks ago. To say that that's the hardest thing we've ever been through is an understatement. He was the center of Ann's, Michael, and my life for 31 years. And we loved him dearly. As we continue to deal with the loss of Brennan, I can only tell you that our faith in God is the only thing that gets us through each and every day because it's a challenge. He's missed, he's loved, and I'd like to see him every single day, but we know that we can't do that anymore. But because of our faith in God, we truly know that we will see him again one day. And I would tell any dad out there that's ever faced with this, that if you don't have God in your life and you're not able to lean on him, it's an impossible task to get through because this is what it takes to make it through an event like this. We're still dealing with this in our lives and I think we'll be dealing with this until he calls us home and we get to see Brennan again. But I would truly tell you to embrace God, love your children, hug them every day and spend as much time as you possibly can with them. Thank you. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting as, a central, as central to his call before God and does it with all his might. That's an intentional dad. Being intentional is all about trusting that the goal, call, and conviction from God to be a dad is worth the time and effort and sacrifices that must be taken to see God's purposes through. Now I want to close our time with a parable from the Bible that models not only an intentional dad, but the intentional father that all of us have in God. And I've titled the last point, A Dad Who Runs. The parable of the prodigal son is recognized as probably one of the most memorable stories Jesus has ever told. And although it's commonly called the prodigal son, it really is the focus on the compassionate dad. The son is the rebellious sinner and the father is seen as God. Luke chapter 15 verse 11. I'm going to highlight some points of this story. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. And he had gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. How many of you have ever had a bad idea? 
that eventually led to a bad decision. That eventually led to a bad situation. This young son had a bad idea that led to a bad decision that put him in a bad situation. He came to his dad, and it's not a subtle request. He says, Dad, I want my inheritance, which really means, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because you don't get an inheritance until after somebody passes. So the, the guy's saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Just give me my inheritance now. It's one of disregard to the Father. It's one that has no gratitude, no honor. In fact, he's saying, Dad, give me everything that is mine. I want it all, but I don't want you. Give me all the good stuff, but leave you out of it. It's a shameless request. And all who heard it would expect this father to be so angry so ashamed, so dishonored, so disappointed. They would expect, even in the Jewish culture, for the father to slap the son. To shame him, to punish him, to dismiss him from the family, and perhaps even hold a funeral for this son. But to their surprise, in verse 12, what does the father do? The father divided up his wealth. And gave it to the son. Now the bigger picture here is this. That God is giving the sinner their freedom. Now once the son gets all his cash. You see what happens in verse 13. He went on a journey to a distant country. Now the operative word here is distant. He wanted to get as far away from his dad as possible. His shameful request has now turned into shameful rebellion. And what he thought was a great plan starts to unravel in verse 14 when it says, Now he had spent everything. Now one commentator brings out a good point and says this, He spent everything was the son's fault. But at the end of 14 it says, A famine came. That was God's doing. And the point is this, is that you and I can think we have control over things, and we can have control over some things, but we don't have control over everything. In fact, we do not get to choose every circumstance or consequence in our rebellion. God has a say in it too. And he wants to bring us to humility, which is what the famine did for this young son. And so we see, begin to see this desperation of this younger son. He has no family. He has no a fam, uh, 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 money. He's in a foreign land. Verse 14 says he's impoverished, meaning he is recognizing his need. He's tried to be his own God, but now he's realizing he didn't have what it takes to be his own God, and neither do we. He's in a pretty low state, particularly because he is feeding the swine. Now, to the Jewish community, that would just be the lowest. But it gets even lower because he says, I would rather just go ahead and eat what I'm feeding the swine, which is the lowest of low. Listen to verse 17, but when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer to be worthy to call your son. Make me with one of your hired men. Verse 17 says he came to his senses. 
What does it mean to come to your senses? Anybody ever come to their senses here? Some of us are still kind of waiting for people to come to their senses, I know. When you come to your senses, you become aware of things. He came to his senses. He became aware of things. He, 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 he became aware of his position. And what's really interesting is as he becomes aware of his position, his father re-enters his mind in verse 17. And although he had done everything, I'm sure, to keep his father out of his mind, when he was in the position he was, his father returns to his mind. And Jesus allows us in this story to enter the eavesdrop in the conversation he's having with himself. How many of my father's hired people are eating and having it better than I do? But that's where repentance begins. Repentance begins moving forward after an accurate assessment of our condition. Now we can see the younger son kicking himself, realizing now more than ever how he's messed up, how this bad idea turned into a bad decision, left him in a bad situation. He's thinking about his father, and he, we hear inside of his mind that he is longing for home. In spite of the horrible way he's disgraced his dad, he is, he's ready to go home. And verses 20 through 24 is the true focus of the story, the intentional father, a dad who runs. Verse 20 says, So he got up, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, he saw his father, his father saw him and left and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, the Pharisees and the Jews standing around are already over the top with this story. But for this dad to run after the son, after what the son had done to him, it, it just, it's just too much. Most fathers would and probably should, according to the Jewish customs, disown this son. And when he comes back, he is going to get it. Shame and scorn and embarrassment. And not only from the father, but the whole community had the right to do it. To spit on him, to slap him, to beat him up, to lead him outside of the community. And, in, and if and when the father would let him in, there will be this, this, this cool kind of period where I'm always testing, is he really going to accept me or, or do I really have to do this and do I have to do that in order to, to, to be back into the, the family? And sadly enough, there's some here today that still have that perception of God. That God is going to somehow shame us because of what we've done. Or hold us accountable for the sins that we've committed. And reject us if we're ever to come back to him. And if you believe that, lean in and listen really close. What does this father do? While he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Why did Jesus say while he was a long way off? Because it speaks to the Father looking for him. It speaks to the intention of the Father. The Father's looking reveals the private pain, the suffering love, and unquenchable longing in his heart since his, father, since his son's been gone. Now why is he looking? I think there's two reasons. Partly because he longs to have his son home. 
But there's another reason. He wants to get to the sun before the sun reaches the village. The father wants to protect the son from all the shame, all the scorn, all the embarrassment. The father wants to bear the shame himself. The father would rather people be saying, what is that father doing? It's scandalous. He's running after that despicable boy. He sees him from a long way off. And second, it says he felt compassion. And not just, not just compassion from the past sin and the current situation, but compassion to protect him. And how does he do it? It says in verse 20 that he ran. Now the Greek says he sprinted. The father runs, taking the shame of himself to protect the son from it. He's willing to disregard his own shame to save the shame of his son it is the father who takes the scorn and the mockery and the slander so that the sinner doesn't have to bear it. Does this sound familiar? It's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And it's not enough to say that he kissed him. This Greek word, repeatedly kissing him. It's like one of those grandmas you haven't seen for a while. And they just hold you and you're just like, Grandma, we got it. That's the picture of God and you and me. Now remember where his son has been with the pigs. The last time I was around a pig, it didn't smell very good. Here's the son coming from the swine and the father embraces him, buries his head in his neck and just begins kissing him repeatedly. That's the intention of our Heavenly Father. The father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, all gifts to restore his sonship. Verse 23 and 24, bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found and they began to celebrate. Think with me just for a minute. Who gave him his life back? The father gave him his life back. With all the rights and privileges of a son. I'm convinced the celebration is not about the son coming home as it is about the intention of the father. Remember, God our father is intentional about pursuing and receiving the sinner who comes repenting and believing. He lavishes on us this seemingly scandalous grace and forgiveness. And then he holds a heavenly celebration for every sinner who comes home to him. I want to close with this. Mr. Rogers, anybody remember Mr. Rogers? Mr. Rogers was asked in 1985 by Oprah on her show, what is the best thing a parent can do for their child? And he said this, the best thing a parent can do for their children is remember their own childhood. And I think that's true for us as believers as well. Remember the intentional pursuit of our Father and what it took for us in Christ to be called children of God. 
And in turn, as dads, we're to model what we've seen in this parable. To continue praying for, longing for, running towards, reminding, remodeling, teaching our kids of God's love and his greater purpose for their lives. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are an intentional dad who pursues us, protects us, rejoices over us. I think about this story and the boy returning home, and he did all this without the boy ever saying a word. God, I pray this morning that you would help us embrace your love for us, your intentional heart towards us. And God, for the dads here, I pray that you give them courage and energy and wisdom and discernment to be intentional dads. For your glory and for ours and our kids' good, we trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.